Listener Production. Are you sick of your landlord being able to jack up your rent whenever they want by as much as they want? If we do not put a limit on the amount by which rents can go up across the country, we could be seeing millions of people forced into even more severe financial stress. So a rent cap is a controversial idea here in Australia and it's central to a big political fight happening at the moment and it's not between Labor and Liberal, it's a fight between Labor and the Greens. The Greens are blocking a big piece of Labor housing legislation in the Senate. So in this briefing, we're going to put the Greens' rent cap idea to the test in an interview with their housing spokesperson, Brisbane Greens MP Max Chandler-Mather, who's fast becoming a thorn in Anthony Albanese's side. First, here are today's big headlines. Hey, it's Antoinette Latouf here on Tuesday the 22nd of August and our first story may be a little distressing. It's the case that's horrified people in the UK and around the world and now the British nurse who killed seven babies has been sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole. So this sentence is known as a whole-of-life order. Lucy Letby, on each of the seven offences of murder, and the seven offences of attempted murder, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. So Lucy Letby committed the crimes in a neonatal unit where she injected the babies with air, force-fed others milk and poisoned two of them with insulin. So Letby has become only the fourth woman in UK history to receive multiple life sentences, and that's the most severe punishment possible. She's also the most prolific child murderer in the country. And Tom, I don't think you need to be a parent or even necessarily like children to realise that this story is absolutely mind-bogglingly horrific. Well, yeah, a you know a neonatal unit. These are the most vulnerable human beings that exist, babies that have been early and who are, you know, needing all the support they can mm. to live. So it's just horrific. Um, there's outrage in the UK that this woman didn't even appear in the dock for her sentencing. And the UK Prime Minister uh, has said that he's planning to change the law to compel convicts to attend their sentencing hearings. And if you're wondering why somebody would do something like this, police can't seem to find anything in her background or upbringing that may have triggered this. Colleagues did start pointing out or start getting suspicious because she was the only common denominator when there were all of these infants dying or becoming incredibly unwell. And what led to police pressing charges in the first place was that they found a note in her home. It was a kind of handwritten scribbling. Hate was written in big words. Um, but then she also wrote, I killed them. I killed them on purpose. Um, I'm horrible. I'm an evil person. She's probably not wrong there. And Qantas has been hit with a class action lawsuit seeking millions of dollars in compensation for customers who had flights cancelled during the pandemic. So the lawsuit filed yesterday alleges the airline misled customers about their refund options, withheld funds and engaged in a pattern of unconscionable conduct. So lawyers also allege Qantas breached Australian consumer law by failing to immediately issue refunds and by retaining customers' money. Qantas has rejected the allegations and said it has not been served a claim as of midday yesterday, but it might have arrived in the meantime. Yeah, so lawyers allege also that the airline's use of these travel credits have 
allowed it to treat customers' money as, and this is what they're calling it, you know, as more than a billion dollars in interest-free mm. loans. And we, we do know that in, in February that the airline posted a billion and a half year net profit, and it's expected to announce its profits for the financial year on Thursday. So it seems on the financial front, Tom, that it's um, well and truly recovered from the pandemic. And I don't know, like once upon a time, Qantas had a, a peerless reputation, but in the past few years, its reputation's been a bit of a tailspin. Well, it has been a difficult time for airlines. I know people don't have much sympathy for companies that are making billions of dollars, but airlines around the world have struggled to recover from the pandemic in terms of their service offering. Obviously, as you pointed out, financially, they're sort of bouncing back. Uh, There were flights cancelled, problems with luggage, a worker shortage, an absolute mess. And yeah, Qantas's reputation has gone down in that spin as well. It is raising the question, like, should the government have an inquiry into the airline industry more broadly? Like, I say probably. There have been allegations of price gouging. There's the ground stuff, sacking and outsourcing. I know, it might be a good time to have a to have a closer look at the industry. Well, speaking of Qantas, there's another interesting story. So um, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has been forced to defend his son, Nathan, who has been given a Qantas Chairman's Club membership. So It's common that they're given to the wives or husbands of MPs, um, but not so much the children. This has come out in a column by the Australian Financial Review's columnist, Joe Aston, who said the Prime Minister should have declared this benefit on his parliamentary registry. Um, Now Joe Aston has pointed out that Nathan Albanese also got a two-week internship at PwC Um, So then the Prime Minister has come out saying, look, his son is not a public figure and he shouldn't be subjected to this kind of scrutiny. The Spanish soccer chief has apologised for kissing a player after taking out the Women's World Cup in Sydney on Sunday night. The Royal Spanish Football Federation president, Luis Rubiales, has admitted he made a mistake when he gave Jennifer Hermoso a kiss on the lips after she received her gold medal. So this was captured on camera and it went viral. And lots of people called it out as being mm. gross and creepy and unprofessional. And now he's posted a video statement online saying, in a moment of elation, without any intention of bad faith, what happened happened in a very spontaneous way. And Tom Hermosa had told teammates afterwards in the locker room that she didn't like it and that was captured on video but she later downplayed it saying it was a mutual gesture that was totally spontaneous prompted by the huge joy of winning a world cup Mm. yeah i think it's good that he apologized i think he got that moment wrong so he's acknowledged that and um i guess from here they move on and maybe they they think about those moments a bit more carefully those older male soccer chiefs who are hanging around sort of getting on the coattails of the women's game. Yeah, like I I get that he's apologised and I probably understand why Hermosa tried to downplay it because he is so senior and she probably doesn't want to look to be, Mm. uh, you know, causing trouble. But like, just like don't kiss people unprompted if you don't have a relationship with them. It's like, it's not a moment of elation. It's kind of gross. Keep your hands and your lips to yourself. Totally. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you again soon. I'm about to go deep on housing with the Greens MP, Max Chandler-Mather. There's a game of chicken happening right now in federal politics. Labor proposed a new $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, but the Greens essentially blocked it in the Senate in June. 
Well, I've been negotiating and talking with uh, First Ministers, not with minor parties. Uh, you cannot say you support increased housing supply and vote against the Housing Australia Future Fund. So a bit of a jibe there from Albo to the Greens, who are technically a minor party, but one with a fair bit of sway because, as in this case, they control the balance of power in the Senate. So Albo might have to start negotiating with them if he wants to pass his Housing Australia Future Fund. So what is the fund? Well, basically, the government would borrow $10 billion, invest that in the Future Fund, and then spend $500 million a year from that fund on social and affordable housing. So the idea is that it's supposed to be a self-sustaining fund. So rather than just invest that $10 billion straight into housing, they keep the principal and invest the earnings from that money every year. The Greens are saying that won't create enough new affordable housing or do anything for renters who've seen rent skyrocket in many parts of the country. So to pass the Housing Future Fund, the Greens want a rent freeze for two years and then a cap on future rent increases. And they're saying that unless the government negotiates with them, they're going to block this legislation when it comes to the Senate in October. Labor are saying that would give them a trigger for a double dissolution election, meaning they could call an early election and re-elect the whole Senate. So big fighting words from Labor. Max Chandler-Mather is the Greens' federal housing spokesperson Max, thanks for joining us. First, you stole Kevin Rudd's old Labor seat of Griffith in Brisbane. You won it for the Greens last year. And now, now that you're in there, you're blocking their housing policy. So I imagine you're right up there with Peter Dutton as Labor enemies right now. Look, I mean, I think they're probably frustrated that uh, we're insisting that they spend a little bit more on public housing and do something for renters. I'd hoped actually that there would be a little bit more collaboration here. But yeah, here we are. I suppose there's a healthy level of... um, conflict, I suppose, going on at the moment. But um, to put it nicely, what this boils down to is a push in the middle of a massive housing crisis to do a bit more on the housing crisis rather than lock in what we would argue is failure. Okay. So you already voted down their housing policy once. So this is the $10 billion plan where they invest $10 billion into the future fund and then spend at least half a billion a year on social and affordable housing. You're saying that's not enough. You blocked it once. They're going to put it back into the Senate again in October. And you're saying, well, you've got to do more. And one of the key things you're asking for is to actually freeze rents for two years. So no one's rent would go up for two years. And then after that, increases would be capped. Tell us why you think that's a good idea. Well, firstly, we haven't voted down the Housing Australia Future Fund. The Senate voted to defer consideration of it, so there was more time to negotiate. Uh, The government's been a bit cheeky and said that's blocking, but that's just a process to give us more time to negotiate with the government. Uh, I should also be clear that we're in the process of this negotiation. We have managed to secure $2 billion going out the door right now to be spent on public and affordable housing. That's actually four times the amount of money that Labor's original proposal would spend every year on social housing. That's as a result of our pressure and and deferring that consideration, that bill, there's now four times the amount of money going out the door right now. On capping rent increases, well, rents are going up at the fastest rate we've seen in 35 years Mm. uh, and 62% of renters are in financial stress. And we also know the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, the one that keeps chucking up our interest rates, they've actually said that they expect rents to go up faster over the next 12 months. Now, If we do not put a limit 
on the amount by which rents can go up across the country, we could be seeing millions of people forced into even more severe financial stress. And, you know, there might be some renters listening to this who are worried about copying a massive rent increase. Well, our point is that in a lot of other countries around the world, there is some form of limit on rent increases. Now, we've proposed a freeze and a cap. We're willing to negotiate. Our bottom line is that we just think unlimited rent increases should be made illegal. Okay, so I guess it comes down to what that cap is. Look, a lot of people listening would say, yes, it it doesn't seem fair that my rent can go up whenever the landlord wants by however much the landlord wants, but if you cap it too much or make this too tight, it will reduce the appetite for investment in building more homes and that will make the long-term supply and demand picture worse and potentially make the whole problem even worse in the long run, even though you might provide some relief in the short term. So what are you proposing? What what would you cap it at? Because one of your early suggestions was 2%, which sounds very low. Yeah, we're inspired by other countries around the world that have successfully capped rents. So uh, Europe actually is a great model for how successful proper rental regulation is. There are people who rent their entire lives comfortably mm. in places like Germany and Scandinavian countries because renting is fair. On the question of, oh, does it limit investment? I think I'd make two points to that. The first is that there's a lot of longitudinal studies or like a lot of evidence to suggest that it's not necessarily the case that capping rents affects private investment. But the second thing I'd say is um, we shouldn't have a housing system that only sees homes built when your rents go up. Like that's sort of the implication. Mm. The implication is oh, actually, my rent has to go up by 100 bucks to encourage property developers to build homes. That is not a sustainable housing system, which is why we've also said to the government that rather than rely on property developers entirely, we should also have a much larger investment of government-built homes. And that doesn't just have to be the public housing. Why isn't the government stepping in and chipping in a little of their $20 billion surplus and spending it on uh, good homes for middle-income people as well, where private developers have decided not to build. Well, that's an interesting point. And you talked about the way it works in Europe, where you basically can get a, a lease for life and you have so much more security. But the difference is in a lot of those countries like the Netherlands, Germany, is that the government owns a lot of that housing stock. So they can offer, I guess, a, a different kind of product to a different kind of market. Whereas in Australia, it's mostly private investors who are supplying the rental properties. And and they're under so many different kind of pressures. So, you know, for example, at the moment, if you're renting out your property, your interest rate has basically tripled in the last year and a half. And so therefore your repayments have tripled. And, and that's why a lot of landlords are doing it tough at the moment and they need to adjust their rents. So how would your policy deal with that? Because those short-term fluctuations in things like interest rates, which landlords can't control can really squeeze them. And that's why they'll be scared off in the future, potentially, from a really tight rent cap. Firstly, yeah. I mean, it's a good question. The first point to make, though, is our tax system is designed in a way that where a landlord's costs go up, they can actually write that off on their tax. So that's when, you know, when we talk about negative gearing, uh, that you hear that term thrown around, what that means is a landlord can reduce their taxable income basically by the amount of costs, including interest payments they incur on their properties. So that's only when they're uh, losing money. That's only when their interest repayments are greater than the rent they're making. And that's not a great situation to be in in the long term. Well, no, actually, they also get to positively gear. So we don't talk about this as nearly as much. But if you take together all the tax concessions property developers are getting, so even if they're earning more rent uh, than uh, they are paying in interest, they can actually still write down 
their income. So say if they made $500 in rent in one week and they pay $400 in interest, they can still reduce their tax on their rent by $400. And that costs the country $39 billion this year alone in tax concessions. Now, what we've said is we just need a bit of balance. You know, rents have just gone up the fastest rate in 35 years. We said we just need to slow that down a bit because renters don't get to write their rent off on their taxable income. Mm. The property investors get to write off their costs. And so we think just slowing down the increases a bit because at the end of the day as well, the worst case scenario for a property investor is they sell their home and they either they make a big amount of money, you know, they might make a million dollars off selling the home and then uh, they either sell to another investor or they sell to a first home buyer who was originally a renter and that way there's one less renter on um, the rental market. So I just think that we need to think about the consequences of what happens when a rent is evicted because that means often they're on the streets, mm. sleeping in their car, and, and I think the social consequences of that are so great. We do need to figure out a way to balance it out a bit. Okay, interesting. So I guess back to my my first question about how much of a thorn you're going to be in Labor's side, where is this negotiation going to come to? Initially, you were asking for an extra $5 billion in investment. You wheeled that back to 2.5. Are you going to keep coming down after that? Um, you're, you already said you got $2 billion out of them. In terms of the rental caps uh, or the freeze, I mean, I know you won't want to give away your final negotiating position, but, but where could this land and, and do you think it's likely you will get an agreement with Labor? So we've said, and I've said publicly, we're willing to discuss a number between 500 million, which is what Labor want to spend every year on housing, and two and a half billion, which is what our proposal. And we said we can discuss a number between those two. We think it's fair though that because uh, Labor don't have a majority in one of the houses of parliament in the Senate and they need our votes to pass it, it's fair that we did, there's some negotiation. It's not, I don't think, particularly democratic for the government to say it's our way or the highway on the amount of money they spend every year. I did say we got that one-off $2 billion investment, but that's just a one-off investment going out the door right now. It's not, doesn't happen every year, which is what we're looking to lock in. And then on rents, we're not saying, oh, if we don't get a freeze on rent increases and our 2% cap, then we're not passing it. We keep saying, no, 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 we just want to negotiate a model that stops rents by going up by an unlimited amount. Okay. So you're quite open-minded to what the control looks like, what the cap might be pegged to, the size of that cap essentially. You just want some form of rent control, even if it leaves a fair bit of leeway for landlords to cover costs during high interest rate times or, or any other variables. Yeah, that's right. I mean, because we recognise this is a negotiation and, you know, the Greens aren't in government. We know that our position can't be our way or the highway. And, and I think the other way to think about it as well is um, the social co- benefit of limiting rent increases mm. in some way are enormous as well. Because the other point to make is every renter evicted out of their private rental is another renter who may end up joining the 10-year-long queue for public housing. It doesn't matter how many public homes you built. You're, if there's you know 8 million renters in this country and, and millions of them increasingly can't afford to live in a private rental. So... You know, this, this, it reduces the amount of money the government has to spend in other areas if we slow down the number of mm. people being evicted from their private rentals as well. So I just think there's, there's a broader social benefit that's worth thinking about. We're not asking for everything. We're not even saying we won't pass it if we don't get everything we've asked for. We just want a, a standard negotiation that sees a little bit of a shift. I would hope at the end of this, the government does start to shift a little bit. That's Max Chandler-Mather, Greens Federal Housing Spokesperson. And I think this is a very interesting debate. 
I think the two-year rent freeze has no chance. That would really spook housing investors and give the Federal Liberal Party massive ammunition to damage Labor. And I think ultimately that would be the same for the rent increase cap. I think the idea has some merit, as Max was saying. They have it in lots of other countries around the world, even though the makeup of their, their rental housing is quite different. But politically, that would also be tough for Labor to sell because the Liberals would campaign so hard on that. They'd really try and spook mum and dad housing investors as well as developers. So that would be a difficult one to sell. I think a more realistic outcome from this argy-bargy might be more direct investment from Labor on social and affordable housing, which would be a good thing. Let's see what happens as that legislation gets closer to the Senate. Listener.